Hi, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. Uh, I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium. Today we're going to be talking with Sam Hammond. Uh, Sam is Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Niskanen Center. Uh, he's written for a number of different bylines on various policy issues. Um, Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's your first time here. Yeah. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, Ash. Yeah. So uh, we have a, a few issues on to get you in this podcast. Broadly, we want to be talking about America and China stuff. Um, obviously, this is a very interesting time uh, to be having you on. Uh, I've been following your Twitter account. You've been doing a lot of work on the pandemic response and especially some of the impacts on worker wages and the like. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how it's factored into uh, what you're working on right now? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, so background for me is um, that philosophically, I kind of came out of the liberty movement um, to found the poverty program at the Niskanen Center. Um, and one thing that sort of united unites people at the Niskanen Center is we all sort of had a had a background in libertarian politics or policy. Um, in my case, I worked on libertarian tech policy prior, and um, but. But uh, at Niskanen, everyone sort of has a kind of heterodox spin on, on their respective areas. So like our climate mm -hmm. team is, is um, uh, you know, the libertarian case for a carbon tax. Uh, in my case, uh, I entered uh, with strong views about, um, you know, the role of the welfare state in a modern economy um, and why it couldn't just be replaced by, you know, friendly societies or, or any of the other sort of... Um, uh, abolish welfare, uh, replace it with charity kind of proposals that come out of um, mm. sort of conventional libertarian thought. Um, and uh, my thinking in, in that area is really on sort of the role that social insurance and, and, and welfare programs, labor market policy uh, plays in um, what you, you could think of like the, the system of the economy uh, that uh, a, a robust, uh, dynamic market economy creates a lot of creative destruction, a lot of labor churn, um, a lot of you know serious economic disruption, um, and well-designed welfare policies, social insurance policies help reallocate that labor around, help uh, smooth people's incomes, uh, you know, complete markets where um, in, where private commercial insurance uh, is unable to sort of provide sort of base level benefits. And, and um, you know, my argument has always been that that stuff is all really important uh, from the perspective of economic freedom. So if you care about economic freedom as a premise, uh, you have to look empirically around the world and realize that places that have well-designed social uh, safety nets also tend to be more economically free because um, when people fall on hard times or there is creative destruction, instead of turning to regulation or protectionism, they, um, uh, they have sort of a fiscal alternative. Uh, that smooths their income and, and gets them reemployed, um, mm -hmm. and so that that's sort of been my my, my broader background. Uh, and then you know this stuff all came to fruition uh, in a big way with the pandemic, where we kind of saw how, first of all, there's no you know no, no libertarians in the pandemic sort of uh, uh, right. uh, expression, but then also like this this role of social insurance uh, becoming even much more obvious. Are there neoliberals in a pandemic? Uh, that's a good question. You have to define what a neoliberal is. Well, um, I've been interested to see that people are trying to reclaim the label. I mean, my sense, um, and I'd like to hear if you think this is correct or not, is that there have been people um, 
basically looking at the the establishment, you know, from maybe the 80s onward of this mix of pro-market and, you know, social insurance policies that are thought of in this way as a way to assist the proper functioning of markets. And they've kind of taken the view that actually this has been a very successful mix, um, but, you know, for various reasons, maybe uh, there have been discontinuities in that political program. Like right. it hasn't been understood by the current generation. My sense is that people want to explicitly restore that as a governing model. Um, and it definitely does seem to be urban based in a bit, in a way, in reaction to populism. Um, that I think that would be the general way I'm thinking of this. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've I've been he I hesitate to call myself a neoliberal, not just because the word has a ton of baggage, but because, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it actually obscures more than it reveals. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, t today the people trying to reclaim the word ne word neoliberal, as far as I can tell, they have essentially redefined it as we believe in a mixed market economy. Right. Right. Sure. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, everyone does. You know, functionally, everyone does because there's not really. You know, yeah. Well, I wonder if you can go a bit further, though, because there, I think, even within the Western Overton window, um, a, a strong social democrat could say that, well, maybe markets are important because there are certain things the state can't do right. or in order to build wealth. But really, their purpose, right, is that that wealth is contingent on serving some notion of a political community right. with social democratic values. My sense is that neoliberals flip that around and social assistance is meant to serve, uh, you know, wealth production and essentially enable individuals to live as individuals well, and, okay. you know, deprioritize these substantive identities that other ideologies focus on. Yeah, I mean... I've called, you know, one, one way to think of, so, of social democracy or social democrats are they're basically neoliberals of European characteristics. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's actually a lot of affinity between social democrats in Europe and Europe and the role they kind of play. Like it, 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 the kind of analogous sort of center left uh, neoliberals that we had in, in Western Europe um, and, and, and the Americas. Uh, so, you know, I don't think there's actually that big of a gap between them. Um, you know, there are the pe people like Sam Bowman who sort of say that the, the main distinction between a neoliberal and, and a libertarian, say, is um, that neoliberals are more rooted in consequentialism, whereas uh, libertarians are rooted in sort of rights and property. Um, sure. I, I, I think those things are all sort of like interesting from the level of like pedagogy or like how you want to think about, about yourself. But as like a sociological phenomenon, I... There, I do think there is this thing called neoliberalism that people refer to often pejoratively that refers really to a kind of background um, set of assumptions that people in like a cosmopolitan elite hold, right? And yeah, and that, that's an elite that's transatlantic. So in, on, in the, uh, uh, you know, it's the, the Christian Democrats in Germany versus the, the, Demo the new Democrats in the United States, but <laughs> but ultimately, yeah. I guess, you know, I, I could ask it like this. Uh, I, I think by neoliberalism, people usually mean a project that has its strongest impetus in, you know, in the US, in the uh, Reagan, Bush, Clinton kind of triad of presidential presidents, presidential right. families, and in Britain, in uh, obviously 
uh, Thatcher down through Blair and maybe the early versions of the the conservative governments or Schroeder the current one. I, I guess my question would be, do you think that there is an actual consistent project going on? And if so, do you identify with it in some way? I do not think there's a consistent project. Like, I do not think there is a uh, Bohemian Grove that <laughs> where they come sure. where they come and uh, and sort this stuff out. I think there are broadly there are um, sort of material forces that are acting in history, uh, sort of horizontally across the world, uh, that give rise to common sort of belief systems. But then there's also at the level of uh, at the, the level of ideas itself like fads and fashions and and a, a common culture and perhaps one of the mechanism mechanisms what you know one of the ways that there seems to be all this you know synchron synchronicity across different regimes um, in history is because they do sort of belong to their own sort of class and uh, in the sense that like you know new york uh, and london and paris have more in common than they do with their respective sort of rural counterparts mm -hmm. um and that common culture maybe in, inculcates a set of biases and a set of fads but also you know a lot of the neoliberal projects so to speak you know, kicked off after the 70s oil shock which was like a shock that rippled across the entire world um and and produced a lot of you know very common kind of reactions like in some places it led to democratic socialist movements um and in other places it led to sort of the breakdown of of um, wage bargaining and, and these collective bargaining arrangements because it was sort of attributed to the stagflation that was happening at the same time. So there's like these common, a common culture, but then also common material forces that, that give rise to this. Mm -hmm. There's like a sociological phenomenon. I do not identify that phenomenon. And in part, like one of the reasons I shy away from the, the term neoliberal is in the US context, it does refer to that kind of Clinton style of um, center left Democrat. Um, and if you think about it, like one of, you know, one of the things that, uh, if you think of it, like, if you think of neoliberal as sort of like, a uh, someone on the center left who like agrees with some things on the right or something like that in Clinton's case, it was, you know, reforming welfare, uh, uh right. making means tested benefits harder to access. You know, one of my commitments, um, is that a true understanding of liberalism, like, a properly understood. Um, favors more universal benefits and less means tested benefits, as an example. And I can sort of try to establish that using liberal principles, like the liberal principle of um, you know, uh, cooperation or positive sum relationships. Um, uh, and, and I think that's kind of embodied in social insurance. Um, the, right. But the irony is that, that that makes me sometimes in practice more look more like I am like a, more like a, neat, a new deal liberal than a neoliberal. Yeah, well, you were um, on Eric Tornberg's uh, podcast some time ago, uh, and on there you had uh, a bit of discussion about uh, whether or not in, or in what way you're a Hegelian, uh, which I found quite interesting. You know, Zizek is uh, wiping his nose somewhere as I say that. Um, I, I guess when you're talking about uh, seeing these political cultures or trends or fads, as downstream from these broader socioeconomic conditions. Um, do you think that that is the key thing that distinguishes you from um, maybe earlier political identities that you had? Like, th this is not the way I generally see 
uh, libertarians or even most neoliberals talk about these issues? I think it's what characterizes me as a historicist and rationalist, right? So like, you know, part of mm. what it means to be a Hegelian is to think that uh, you're kind of embedded in history and um, and your, your ideas kind of have this dialectical connection to, to ideas that came before them. Um, and so like by attributing something to a historical movement or to like something that was in the air at the time, so to speak, uh, the spirit of the times, uh, that is not to like invalidate the idea. It's not, that would be like a, that's what's called a genetic fallacy, right? To, sure. to say the origin of something proves that it's not true. And, and if that were the test, then in a, in a sense, all beliefs and all, and all values would be, uh, suspect because everything is embedded in history in my view. So it, mm -hmm. it's, it's only when you have like distance, that you look back on history and you can see the patterns because they become more apparent because when you're living in the, in the moment, it's, it's the, it's the air you breathe, so to speak. It's like fish and water. Right. I mean, there's still choice going on here, but you know, you, one can get into these very abstract debates about how much choice one has to have in order to be considered free or having free will or something like that. And it, but you are choosing from concrete things in the situation that you are in. Right. So like, you know, if one way you could try to define what like a rationalist is or a meta-rationalist in a mm -hmm. Hegelian paradigm is to say somebody who um, makes who ex makes an, eff an effort or or has like the cognitive scaffolding and, and framework to in some way step outside history while they're while they're living it and to look around and see um, and see the flow from like a third party perspective. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and that 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 refers to that, that level of agency that's involved. So there are people who are just following the herd, and then there are people who um, uh, are contrarian. And some of that contrarianism is itself a kind of just mimetic sort of social dynamic where people at, 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 at some point are always going to be you know rebellious against what's mainstream. Um, but there there is like this third third kind of thing where you are genuinely meta-rational, where you're trying to place yourself in sort of a flow of ideas, uh, see the origin of those ideas. Um, hmm. And that can give you like a lot of perspective, but it also gives you a kind of detachment, right? So, so it's not something you, you can really harbor for very long because it, without becoming kind of nihilist. Yeah. Do you think those ideas shape history in some positive sense? Uh, like how, how left Hegelian uh, are we talking here? It, it sounds like you you are coming more or less from that kind of tendency, looking at material no, social no. economic conditions. No, I just refer to those as you know those are just one factor, right? Like I'm like I okay. think material like like Marxist theories of materialism are just kind of right, stupid right. to be honest. Like there's just um, there's a lot of things in history that are driven by. Pure, pure ideas, but ideas have a life of their own, and, and really that's mm -hmm. more of like the original Hegelian idea is not, you know, before he got turned on his head. That, uh, but I think, you know, if you want to be like synthetic, you should you should admit that there are material forces and there's ideational forces, and they're not like there's not like this either or thing. Right. There's there's many causes flowing together here. Um, yeah, and, and you need basically what you need is like a kind of comprehensive like theory of social action or social change. Like a, like mm -hmm. like what rational choice is, but but less sort of narrow. And I think that that can get you a, a bigger picture. But even then, like people spend way too much time arguing over, you know, what silo they want to be in. <laughs> sure.
Well, you know, given that we're in a time when it seems like a lot of uh, preconditions are disrupting uh, or being disrupted, rather, um, you've been looking at on the policy side some of the interesting new ideas coming out into the discourse. I know today you've been looking at worker pay. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, the work you've, you, you've been doing? Sure. Um, so the context here is uh, today we released a report on uh, Patriot Pay, which is a concept that a proposal from Mitt Romney um, to uh, use wage subsidies to, to compensate frontline workers, people um, in low-wage professions who are nonetheless putting their, their lives at risk to, you know, bag your groceries or uh, pack your meat, <laughs> whatever the case may be. Yeah, frontline. Yeah, frontline essential workers. Um, and you know, the, the role in my, in my work there is uh, to take a, take a small step back. Um, you know, my day-to-day policy work is to try to connect a lot of these ideas, especially about, about social insurance and its relationship with the market, um, to advance policy change. And I work a lot with offices on Capitol Hill and um, often very arm's length. And, uh, you know, one of my longer term strategies is, or goals is to, uh, give, to provide ideas, policy ideas, uh, to more moderate or reform a con or whatever, whatever term you want to use, uh, part the, the, the segments of the Republican party that are not just kind of freedom caucus, uh, anti-government types. Right, mm-hmm. the people that like know nothing, who, and I mean that in like the <laughs> in the nicest, nicest way possible, possible <laughs> yeah. uh, who 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 like hold hold positions of, of, of in policy, but don't believe that policy has a role. Um, and so, in this in this case, you know, I've uh, you know one of my beliefs is that the U.S. labor market is has far too few active labor market policies, uh, uh, much too small and threadbare unemployment insurance programs, then also much too small and threadbare uh, retraining and job search and related programs. Um, and one of the reasons we got away with, with that sort of threadbare state status quo for so long was because the U.S. is this big, relatively closed economy. Like even with low trade barriers, it's, the U.S. is still kind of a closed economy because we're so big. Um, and, yeah. and, that, and that shielded us from shocks. You know, so a lot of my work's on this picked up after the China shock uh, and discussing how, you know, the, the severity of that shock and how it led to opiate, opiate abuse and deaths of despair and all that uh, uh, was also downstream of the fact that we just didn't have like the social technologies to help recycle these employees, these workers who were disrupted into higher productivity work. Um, and now we're sort of seeing a different kind of shock, right? So like, you know, one, when I would write about the China shock, people would say, well, yeah, that's a once in a lifetime shock. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. There's not going to be another shock. But the point is you don't really know what the next shock is. If you did know, it wouldn't be shocking. And now we've yeah. had this very different shock. I think that um, it's it's been interesting to see, you know, when the pandemic started, people were referring to it as a black swan event, you know, an, an event that has high impact, but is not predictable. But you know, when when Taleb um, was being interviewed, he made the, I think, very legitimate point that, but this is not a black swan be- precisely because it was predictable. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's a way in which any of these events, we know they will come. We know there will be diseases that break out. We know that, you know, powers will rise uh, in history. 
um, you know, hardly a century goes by that, you know, some great power doesn't suddenly rise in the world in a new way. Um, maybe you can even predict that more accurately. But the American system, and by that I mean not just the political, but also the uh, private economic institutions, seem to become more and more fragile in that direction. Right. Like, do you see the work you're doing as geared toward rebuilding something more resilient here? Or, you know, how long term, how are you thinking about these things? Right. So, so you know, one of the longer term motivations is um, the United States system of government is incredibly biased towards gridlock. There are large technological, geopolitical, other forces, demographic forces taking place. Maybe this is a little bit left to go in that are. Know, changing the base, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Material conditions. Right, yeah. Um, Sniff. And on some level, you know, no change is the only certainty. Things are always changing. Uh, institutions just change slower by nature. Um, and in some level, there has to be this like direction of fit between the institutions and the, and the social reality. And if those, if that direction of fit breaks down, even if even if the institutions don't like change at all, but the but they lose their direction of fit with the the present reality, then they lose legitimacy. Right, um, and mm-hmm. the legitimacy, legitimacy crisis can lead to, you know, revolts of the public, to uh, social unrest, to, you know, decadence and decline, um, and that's what I really am worried about in the U.S. context, especially because it's so biased against um, large-scale structural reform. Um, yeah. And so the but, but to get long, long-term structural reform, therefore, you need to have a Republican Party that is not necessarily fitting any particular ideology, but at least believes in the idea of statecraft, right? That, that is able to, you know, say that, you know, the government has a role in preventing opioid deaths or something like that. Um, right. And, and right now, you know, so in a sense, you can think of like, oh, my work on say child tax credits or wage subsidies in the proximate sense is it's work on child poverty or reemployment programs. But in the ultimate sense, it's, um, to, push on this wedge, push on, push on the thread to get Republicans more interested in actually governing um, and, and flexing that muscle. Uh, because I do think there are, there's a, a deep need for you know, much larger structural change. And that requires us having some kind of consensus about where, mm-hmm. about where to go because the alternatives are collapse or um, some kind of one-party state. Uh, and neither of those seem very appealing to me. So, you know, on... You're operating very much in in a party system here. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things at Palladium that people have appreciated is that we've sort of maintained operation outside of it. I mean, we very much come out of the Bay Area ecosystem, and so you know, I I, I don't think people should ever pretend that they're operating with a blank slate in that way. But I think that the Bay Area ecosystem itself has in a way, I mean, obviously, California is a blue state, but within the intellectual discourse that's going on, there's appreciation, I think, for not a nonpartisan frame in the sense of not promoting some kind of vision, Mm -hmm. but one that is not, uh, at least right now, entrenched within the two-party back and forth. And I, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on whether you think that a like substantive reunification of the vision that undergirds America is possible in the two party system, because it seems to me, you know, 
um, we're both Canadian here, I guess. And so in, in some way, you know, we've we at some point had to learn about an American political culture mm-hmm. as it exists. The religion, culture, the sports people play, the cities they live in, the industries they work in, the the party structures have had this interesting effect of almost cannibalizing i think a lot of american life you know down to the very ordinary social values people talk about no i I think you're conflating uh parties with partisanship and they're not the same thing okay fair enough um but in that case can you elaborate on that because i'd like to hear whether you think that an like a substantive american vision comes out of one or the other or n- neither. So I, I guess my first comment is, you know, part of what makes someone in a Hegelian, like I said, like is being in history, like there's this path dependency. Um, we don't have the option to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I hasten to, uh, I don't, I, I am very concerned about what a constitutional convention would look like in the U.S. context. Well, let me jump in here and say, could it not simply be the case that the structure uh, bars any solution from ever happening? That's a very possible outcome. I mean, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no telos that requires that this all leads to a happy outcome. Um, right. And, 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 but I, the point, but the point is, is like, there are, there are, you know, it's kind of like cl- you know, climbing the mountain, climbing Mount uh, Improbable. Um, and there's a path, there's, there's a feasible path and you can't just leap across a, ca- a chasm. You have to sort of walk up the path in, in a way that's sort of like monotonic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and that means working within the existing structure, right? And that doesn't that doesn't mean that you can't have like an Andrew Yang or someone like that come out from uh, left field and you know win a nomination and remake the party. That happens all the time. That's an ex- actually an example. Sure. But one thing that it, it does not work is like Justin Amash running on the Libertarian ticket. That that, that never works. And the other thing that doesn't work is uh, you know sitting in um, a, Berk- a Berkeley apartment talking about how you just wish we could upload our brains to the cloud or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like the, 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 there's a lot of LARPing that happens and uh, I just want to do the, you know, I want, I don't want to be the role playing. I'd rather be like actually doing things. And I think that requires sort of having a, a realist political view. And, that, and that's not, that's different from being partisan, right? So America is incredibly partisan, but it also has incredibly weak parties far weaker than, than, than other advanced yeah, democracies. The national parties aren't really a structure that exists uh, exactly. in the way they do in the UK or Canada or other countries. And, you know, I'm inspired by actually Canada, the, the strength of Canadian parties. That, that, that really influences my views on the, what, the importance of parties. Um, uh, like one reason why can, Canadian politics is, is so relatively moderate and uh, resistant to populism um, of various types and, and, and ends up functioning pretty well and is very consensus driven is because you you don't vote for the president you vote for your party and if they have enough <laughs> if they have enough MPs they become they they can form a government and once they form a government if they have a majority they can they can kind of do what they want uh, within reason um, mm-hmm. and that's like so in Canada they imbue the majority government with a ton of power but it's uh, it's constrained not by like really rigid rules on what how that power can be used but but by the filtering mechanisms that get people in the in the positions of power because people have to work up their way through the parties those parties are by nature moderating um uh and 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 based on consensus and this stuff is all like super important and it's important not that you know i think the fallacy people fall into that they don't want to, they don't like that 
argument is because they they think moderate means like incremental squishiness um, and they want like big bold reforms but in fact some of the biggest boldest reforms happen when you have relatively strong consensus Tyler Cowen has made this point uh, in the context of Canada. He wrote a, a, an article about you know Canada's relatively high trust in government, and one of the reasons Canada so Canada has relatively high trust in government. They also have very strong parties. What did that mean for Jean Chrétien? It meant that he could reduce the size of the federal government by thirty <laughs> percent, right? right? And uh, you couldn't do that in the U.S. context, and that's not because that's that's not because we have too strong of parties, but too weak of a party system. We have a we have a very strong partisan system, but that's very different because that that ends up just being like this ethereal coding that we put on different issues. There's actually no institutional structure. It's not like the DNC or RNC are running any of this stuff. <laughs> they are very yeah. shells of an institution. Um, and 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 then as a consequence, rather than having sort of like uh, institutions that can promote deliberation and consensus building, uh, everyone is kind of a free agent. I, I think that one of the things that seems to happen um, in the American system is that you have these power centers that are sort of immensely powerful on a localized plane, but then people kind of assume their power in other areas is much stronger than it is. And you know, my favorite example of this is like tech billionaires. People talk about how powerful tech billionaires like Bezos are, and sure, they are, you know, in very real ways. But on the other hand, they can't even get like housing regulations uh, changed in San Francisco. They can't build skyscrapers um, you know, downtown or, or in the East Bay uh, where they might want to. And so d- despite the fact that on the one hand, they control the data of, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of people sometimes, um, it might be that they're actually incredibly weak uh, on a different axis of governance. And when I was writing about decentralization recently, I think this is something that I was trying to figure out some kind of holistic way of thinking about. Um, America, there are a lot of very powerful organizations in America, but there is very weak coordination in America. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm interested, given that you are looking at this from sort of a realist standpoint, is there a pathway you do see to restoring uh, bold coordination on the national level? Yes, I guess guess you kind of have to believe there's a path or else you're just, or or else we're doomed. Um, you know, some of the things that have to happen are the uh, the, the factionalization of Congress, right? So, like for the last twenty years or so, since Gingrich era, there's been a steady like consolidation of congressional legislative power behind leadership. And what that means is that that you know Nancy Pelosi and and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and uh, Steve Mnuchin like write the entire bill and then everyone else votes on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, very parliamentarian almost right and uh in in some in some cases i would like i like that kind of parliamentary centralization but the u.s isn't built as a parliamentary system so it doesn't work right um mm-hmm. it can be conflict with the executive which doesn't exist in the rest of the anglosphere really exactly um and then you also have the ability for uh members to vote their conscience on everything um so you have aoc uh or you know uh, other insurgents all, like in in Canada, if it, it's it's or in, in the UK, I imagine it's it's it's, it's a big deal if uh, to, if you hold a free vote or if uh, one a member of your party votes against the rest of the party. Um, that, mm-hmm. that stuff happens routinely in the US, and that and so you need a system that sort of accommodates that. And the way you accommodate that is not by centralizing things in leadership, but by actually leaving things back at the committee level where things where you know Congress is actually designed to 
uh, to do the work of legislating. Because um, committees, especially if they were closed door and didn't have cameras where people could just grandstand, like committees are where uh, members on both sides of the aisle actually sit down with you know and have discussions about what needs to happen to the farm bill or to whatever. And, that, and that's where those trades can and bargains can take place. Um, and if, if that regular order, if a, return, if a return to that sort of uh, uh, style of legislation happened, I think you'd see a lot less gridlock in Congress, number one, but also a lot less uh, polarization uh, because, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell end up defining what their respective parties stand for. Uh, whereas if something comes out of a committee that has the assent of both sides of the aisle in that committee, or if it's only supported by one faction, say the Freedom Caucus or the Progressive Caucus, it doesn't get ascribed to the entire uh, DNC or the entire um, uh, GOP. And, and and then it also creates the opportunity for different factions to form coalitions um, for the center-left and the center-right to uh, work together uh, uh, or, or for you know, as happens in, in parliamentary systems for a, um, a, pl a plurality to win over a fringe to just get to get to the majority, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. that, I think that at the level of institutional reform is really important to, to, to get Congress working right. And then I would, you know, then, then the next step mm -hmm. is like getting, <laughs> rebuilding party structure and that, and that requires like significant electoral reform. Fortunately, I don't think it requires like ending the electoral college. I think it, it's more about you know, ending open primaries, uh, giving, um, uh, you know, have, having parties that are more regional and, and reflect regional interests. That's another, I think, benefit of the Canadian system. The level of regionalization means that, like, uh, the Liberal Party in Atlantic Canada is not necessarily the same as the Liberal Party nationally. Right. Do you not think, though, that there has been regionalization? I mean, the, there clearly are, you know, the red state, blue state divide, red regions and blue regions. Um, but they're along partisan lines, right? Like, sure. So, like, but by uh, regionalization, I mean something that looked more like the the pre civil rights sort of era, where you had, uh, you know, a lot of overlap between, you know, the Democrats, the uh, Democrats uh, who are to the right of Republicans and Republicans who are to the left of Democrats, sure. and that and that's that stuff um, comes out of regionalization. But I guess even in that sense, I mean, one one already had you know a, a California Republican versus uh, an, an Alabama Republican or a New York Republican are fairly different creatures. They're, they're different, but but the, I think part of the 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 trend has been for those differences to uh, be decreasing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's that stems from like not just that stems from like the nationalization of political discourse, um, mm -hmm. and you know that it poses problems, and the, it, I don't think it's sustainable because you have, you know, Pelosi recognizes that they only have control of the House because they won all these moderate purple Democrats, uh, but the the moderate purple Democrats aren't celebrities like AOC is, and so she's like doing this balancing act um, to keep the whole party together. Um, I think that doesn't. I, I, I basically think that doesn't last, and at some point. There has to be some level of factionalization where, uh, where we think of the purple Democrats and the progressive Democrats as sort of more like two different parties, even though they are the same party. Mm. What do you think the future is of uh, West Coast political identity on the national level? Well, I think there's this, this uh, more broader, interesting trend happening where uh, because of new, new media, digitization, the internet, et cetera, the rise of Silicon Valley, um, 
the edifice of like the waspy New England elite has has really been rocked, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and so the West Coast is is sort of rising uh, and taking up taking advantage of the opportunity to you know establish new cultural and media influence. Um, I think the 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 issue to date has been that uh, because Silicon Valley is so apolitical or anti-political um, that they are not making as much inroads into the actual structures of government that they should be. Uh, and you know, for all the attention and all the cultural and uh, economic capital that the Bay Area has produced, um, you still end up with administrations being staffed and people from, you know, people from Yale and Harvard and, and Princeton yeah. and, and, uh, and parts of the sort of uh, New England patronage class. I think that part of what has happened is that, you know, we're talking here about base conditions. And in a way, digital technology has been one of the last things that has changed American life in a very nonpartisan way. Like both parties now have to contend with social media being this hugely important vector of doing politics. Um, Lives in both Alabama and in the Bay Area have been changed by smartphones and uh, all of these different technologies. And because of that, tech for a long time has been this thing that has been nonpartisan in the way that you know you're using that term but as this conflict in visions takes place and i think that we are seeing now um that and you know this this informs discussions about things like industrial policy or space programs or all of these different things like there is a, a vision in the bay area that has kind of been latent for a long time that has been assumed is maybe more optimistic uh, believes more in the potential of technology uh, and all these sorts of things. But the, the environment, the ecosystem has tried to avoid the fact that, you know, looking back at the 60s, looking back at how NASA was built, these were intensely political projects and they were even sometimes being done against, you know, popularity in the polls or popularity right. in the government. Um, and so whereas the these great American stories of that time had a lot of political involvement. The Bay area as it stands now does not. Um, and I, I think that's definitely true. And, you know, part some of the stuff we're trying to do with palladium is trying to link. Here's how you can have a bold vision, but also build institutions which are capable of actually making it a real thing. Um, do you think that, this is a lesson the Bay Area will learn? I don't know if they will learn it, but I think they should learn it, right? So, mm-hmm. and if you look at, not even that, that distant in the past, um, the Silicon Valley had a very, you know, it, there was very integrated with uh, the defense establishment, for example. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, people like Andy Grove um, were helped champion uh, Sir Reagan's Reagan era industrial policy and like protecting the semiconductor industry and stuff like that. Um, uh, so there was, there was a period where actually Silicon Valley was more in some ways more politically influential because they didn't shy away from politics in part because they were still sort of closer to their origins in, in defense industrial policy. Um, like in a lot, like in a lot of cases, I think what, what sort of happened over the last 20, 30 years is, is kind of a forgetting a great forgetting of, 
of that origin story and a kind of sense that all this stuff arose spontaneously, right? Like that, you know, Google uh, uh, was created because of um, a few brilliant geniuses in their in their yeah, garage, in and not garage because somewhere. and not because they not because they won a NSF grant to help digitize libraries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's funny because I I remember. Uh, you know, I was in, in high school and university at the time, but I remember late 2000s to 2010s, um, the, anyone who was following debates around things like the security state, um, the ties between tech and national security agencies has been an ongoing topic of debate. And like as institutions or as companies, this is a reality that a lot of the big players like Google, like Amazon, like Facebook have had to face. Right. But it seems to be the case that insofar as there's a discourse in the Bay Area, and maybe even on the VC end to a degree, right? Building political institutions, or at least institutions that have political weight and potential, is seen as not really what we do here. Right. And, um, you know, given that you do a lot of work in industrial policy, I'm interested to hear whether you think that is a useful vector for engaging places like the bay area because this is something you know very concrete you know on the margin there are huge potential benefits huge potential losses here but there's an opportunity to craft a lot of vision as well yeah you know totally i think um you, you know one of the uh you know terms that has become uh, widely discussed since uh, in, in 2020 is this idea of state capacity libertarianism Mm -hmm. Um, and it's sort of become really relevant in, in the context of, uh, COVID where you have, you know, Singapore or Taiwan doing successful tracking and tracing programs because of they have, because they have a kind of benign surveillance state, um, and Bluetooth technology that, that monitors you and very, you know, pretty, pretty chill privacy laws. Uh, a lot of that stuff can't happen at the federal level in the U S because of the fourth amendment and stuff like that. Um, but it can happen at the level of corporations. And so there, there is actually increasingly going to be roles for the private sector to kind of provide pseudo public goods, uh, because the nature of those public goods are, is that like, they're actually like the, the government is actually prohibited from providing them. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, because we may, we, we draw like a very sharp distinction between privacy uh, that the government spies, it's the government spying on you versus, versus your Alexa. Um, so I think there's opportunities there at the kind of interfacing with government to, to build up, uh, different kinds of public goods. Like in a sense, like Google maps is like this amazing global public good that Google just made for the hell of it. Um, so there, there's going to be more of that. I worry that, um, uh, you have to, so to really be engaged in industrial policy, I think it, it has to be more at the level of like, more, um, more, more foundational, right? Like the establishment of new industries, uh, in practice, a lot of the lobbying that like the Googles and Facebooks do is for, you know, more, a bigger R and D tax credit, right? Because, right. because they are, they reap huge rewards from that or, you know, more H1B visas. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, with, uh, Mark Andreessen's, uh, recent piece, uh, it's time to build, um, I, I think one of the good things that came out of discussion, out of the discussion around that was that, you know, you're not just trying to build another app, like that's not what this vision should translate into. 
but without the proper imagination, there's a danger that it will. I, I read that. I, I like that essay. It's time to build. Um, I think it, I thought it was in some ways a mea culpa uh, because the other famous Mark Andreessen essay is software is eating the world. And in yeah. some ways that essay was a, a, a confession that actually we need a lot of hardware and um, a lot of institutions. Uh, and uh, we have to build things that are physical and concrete, not just uh, build more software and hope that it, it sort of takes care of things. In um, Isaac Wilkes' uh, response piece on Palladium, uh, it called It's Time to Build for Good. Uh, people can read it on the site. Um, one of the points that he makes is that the aesthetic element of the visions that shape industrial strategies are extremely important because that embodies the idea of the society that's being pursued. And, you know, in, in a way, if you look at things like NASA, what almost seemed to be getting done was first crafting a myth. And then a lot of the harder policies around it were kind of now let's reverse engineer the myth right. that we've created. Like, do you think that myth making is sort of an important element of the politics here? Um, yes, um, but I think there's a less uh, less Straussian way to, <laughs> to put it because it's not. You know, they're, they're... I, I'm using the word in a very uh, you know ordinary sense. Yeah. No, there's no esoteric reading of it. Well, I, th I think there we can have that discussion i think there there is a discussion to be had about sort of what the you know the, the meta narratives are um right but i think in, in a more prosaic level uh successful industrial policy and successful institutions more generally require need missions right and so if that mission is going to the moon um that that's a mission or if it's developing the atom bomb that's a mission and uh one of the values of a mission is it it is able to take you know all the different arms of government that are, that all can contribute in some way to that mission to have a common lodestar and but they might all be working on different problems to right so like mm -hmm. maybe the problem is we need a material that doesn't that is like heat resistant uh for when we go through the atmosphere in our spaceship um and so then we get all kinds of new technology that comes out of that um that they weren't setting out to develop new technology to be used in our you know, insulating our home or something like that. <laughs> but they were all behind this this visionary mission, uh, and the mission isn't really a myth. It actually is real, but it, the the mythical part is that it's not really the point. The myth, the the mission is it's uh, the carrot you're dangling in front of the donkey. Yeah. Well, we had a digital salon recently with uh, Robert Zubrin. Um, who's a big advocate of, uh, you know, restoring NASA um, and of, of a Mars direct mission. And one of the points that he made, which I thought was quite interesting, is that a successful purpose in an institution kind of does as many things at once as it can without weakening the mission itself. And so, you know, in, in the case of um, the space race, uh, on the one hand, there is a lot of technologies that came out of that. Um, but also uh, the prestige of technological education and scientific education in the U.S. grew. And there was a geopolitical element, obviously, which was the rivalry of the Soviet Union. So I, I think that the return of like discourse about uh, a space program um, is interesting. Like, I, I wonder if returning to that myth will kind of be enough 
if it will solve as many problems now as it did then, or if we're going to kind of have to think of something else. It may. Um, my concern is that, um, you know, one of the one of the things that made the space race unique was, you know, when Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, it was the first time anyone proposed that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, it's and, and now I feel like we're saying we're going to go back to the moon. Right. Yeah. And, well, and this, so this it's, is it's a point Zuber made as well, that going back to the moon is just going back to the moon. Going to Mars is a new thing. Right. Um, but it's a new thing, but it's it's kind of like we just we kept the exact same grammar and substituted it. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's it's the same, you know, the the science fiction and the the stories and the old victories can kind of be brought back out um, in a way. Yeah. yeah. It's like when, it's like when you're watching, like, it's like an anime where like, Every episode is kind of the same. They just replace the character, the the bad guy, with like a, a even bigger bad guy. <laughs> and it's like right, right, uh, or just... uh, yeah, video game bosses or something like that. Yeah, I I think that's true. On the other hand, you know, or or even better, like a literal a literal sequel to like the 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 new Star Wars trilogy. It's like we'll just, we'll just we'll yeah, do just the movie shot the old for characters shot. in. Mm. Yeah, but you know, on on the other hand, um. I think that if you talk to the most deeply involved people, obviously their desire to return to a, a real space program is not kind of purely utilitarian, right? So people like Zubin or people like Musk want to go to Mars for any number of existential reasons, for, for glory, for all these different things. And I think that those forces are still powerful, and I think they're probably still legitimate as well. Um, I mean, right now, humanity is still trapped on a single world, uh, a big enough asteroid, and that story is done. But it'll be interesting to see then if if there's a bigger vision possible somehow that can kind of encapsulate, right, or or evolve um, without losing any of the goals and energies that that program had. So, you know, I think the, the closest thing I, you actually see to this in American politics, politics today is, um, is uh, the Green New Deal. Right. Um, right. And and in, in kind of like the Peter Thiel sort of taxonomy of like definite optimism, it that is a definite optimistic vision. It's and it, it takes off Thiel's um, requirement that to be a, to be truly you know optimistic, you have to be somewhat pessimistic. Right. So you know uh, Andrew Yang was a definite def, had definite optimism because he thought the labor market was going to be automated in, in like a day. <laughs> right. um, uh, AOC has definite optimism because she thinks we only have 10 years to, to save the planet or else it's dead um, and both those things are like literally false but they inspire action and they actually inspire optimism because they inspire a kind of definite vision for how we can succeed and get out of the get out of the quagmire you know one of the ways you can think about it is the Democrats are the only Hamiltonian party at the moment <laughs> um, the the, if you can think of like the neoliberal era as an era where both parties were, were Jeffersonian in their own way, they both want to decentralize, to have their little platoons, mm -hmm. and and um, and forgot about these big visionary projects. Democrats have gone back to a more Hamiltonian mode where they want to do big things. They want to you know retrofit everyone's house with a solar panel, <laughs> um, yeah. and Republicans need to. F there needs to be a right Hamiltonian answer to that, and whether it's space or or building a border wall <laughs> like there are, there are things that uh, that need to fill that gap and uh, and, and it's yeah, really hard I mean, to know in advance what what the thing will be that catches on yeah uh, to me in a way i think the most destructive or dismaying uh attitude i see is something like oh you know 
a, a space program is a waste of time. We should just put that money into rebuilding social assistance or something like this. And not because those things are not important, but I, I, I see in it a sort of... Man this is the managerial spirit to me in a much more real sense, that you can't do great things because great things are just... Uh, a distraction from doing the small things very well, right? Like in ancient China, you know, you had the Mohist school, which was essentially this same tendency. And in those days, the idea was that, you know, you shouldn't have instruments or waste time on literature or high culture or funerary rites or extravagant worship. Um, you should just kind of focus on agriculture and building like siege walls and, and everything else was... And, you know, the, the reason they didn't survive was that other schools of thought integrated their good ideas, and then all they really had left was the managerial personality. And in the end of the day, that doesn't inspire people. Like, people don't want to be just on the margin uh, ticking boxes, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think, uh, you know, touching on China, it, it might be interesting to start talking about that somewhat as well, um, and maybe shift the focus of discussion a bit. You've written... Um, about China before, uh, I believe it was called the the China Shock Doctrine. Was yep. that the name of the article? Um, what is your impression now? How are you thinking about China? I guess in the wake of this crisis, where obviously we've seen relations getting strained, the role of China. There's a lot of questioning going on. Um, people are starting to get, I think, combative more about the the uh, influence of the Chinese government over some international institutions like the World Health Organization. Um, are, are you kind of evolving or updating anything right now in your thoughts here? Well, it, just sort of segue, segueing from our uh, previous topic, um, you know, uh, confronting the threat of China is probably the best candidate for a kind of definite, definite optimism on the right, for, for a right Hamiltonianism. To say, you know, they're going, they're doing their China made in twenty, uh, made in twenty twenty five. We need to have like our own uh, to stay competitive, um, and 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 that to me seems like the most likely um, candidate at the moment. You know, the point of the China Shock Doctrine was actually less to talk about China and more to more to situate the China Shock in the forces shaping American political realignment, right? Because we went from a, a situation where it was black bloc protesters protesting the, the, the WTO in Seattle in 1999, um, like left-wing anarchists, to you know Josh Hawley saying we need to abolish the WTO in the New York Times, um, and so what 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 what's behind that shift? And you know one of the most obvious things is that globalization and the the China shock in particular, you know, hollowed out a lot of the working class jobs. Uh, uh, that supported the rural economy, um, those voters are predominantly Republican and they've been predominantly the losers from globalization. Meanwhile, the winners from globalization are by far the managerial elites <laughs> that, that uh, have their you know, degrees in nonprofit management living in, uh, in nice uh, metropolitan cities that are nicely gentr gentrified and everything else. Um, uh, so there has been this weird like flip in valence where now the left is is um, they don't, you know, they still talk about, you know, rewriting the rules of globalization for environment and labor and stuff like that. But functionally, they, you know, they they um, are quite happy with their, you know, to to get their iPhones made by sweatshop labor. Um, mm -hmm. 
and are more concerned about whether what it means for Tim Cook to be the first gay CEO of a trillion dollar company, right? That, that, right. Um, and even some of the like union stuff that, that exists such that it still exists on the left is very, like super performative, right? It's like Vox.com unionizing, right? These are all, uh, these are all people that are sort of already in the same class. <laughs> um, yeah. And even though they're not necessarily poorly, you know, even though journalists are not the best paid, you know, uh, they are essentially, you know, Harvard graduates who took, who could have worked, who could have made a lot of money, but um, went into journalism because it's, they feel it's because the, they get non, non-wage benefits. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my view has not really updated. It's actually gotten a bit stronger. Uh, you know, one of the lines I use in that piece and uh, other writing is to say that um, uh, America was a large closed economy in the, in the parlance of international trade theory. And increasingly, it's more like a small open economy with the with the political economy to match, right? So mm. there's a consistent finding that you know, going back to my stuff on social insurance, that you know, small open economies need you know have bigger welfare states, but they also have freer markets because they um, are buffeted by the free movement of trade and goods and capital. Um, they're they can't count on their sectors or industries to be stable over time. They might have to retrain people for, the, for new jobs. Uh, if, if the literal trade winds shift, um, the U S was sheltered from that. Now, now we're kind of exposed to that. And the first, the, the China shock was the, was the, the demonstration that we, we are vulnerable to big shocks, but then coronavirus in some ways is also demonstrating that, um, you know, being so big is not necessarily protection where we are, we are a small exposed, vulnerable country um i i think it would be interesting um so when it comes to this back and forth there is a lot of focus on the idea of a china model and what is its ideological role um you know i think there's been more of a willingness now to acknowledge that the Chinese stance that their model is kind of distinctive and they're not seeking to promote it is wrong. Um, I recently tweeted kind of a highlight thread about this um, for a, a paper that was presented to uh, a congressional committee, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission um, by Daniel Tobin, who's uh, with the National Intelligence University. And um, he made a kind of very strong argument that, in fact, there is an ideological aspect to this um, to this rivalry. As someone who's looking, though, more uh, at these baser level socioeconomic conditions, I'm interested to hear whether you think there's going to be convergence on that structural level um, with the two countries. Oh, with, with, with the U.S. and China? With the U.S. and China, you know, I, I'm thinking here of um, in the Cold War, you had some thinkers, I'm thinking here of like Schumpeter or Kozhev, who had the thesis that actually in the long run, you were going to have um, the U.S. and the Soviet Union start to become more managerial. You know, sure, these distinctions of private and public sector would still maybe be there, but the actual culture of institutions would start to get more and more similar. Yeah, that's, um, that's, the, that's like a James Burnham. Uh, right, right. And so I, I'm interested to hear if you think um, that 
we will see something similar happen with China or whether you think distinctiveness will remain somehow or or even if you think one will just win yeah i don't i don't see the competition to be like that zero sum in that sense and i do i do agree that um you know when china says that they don't have expansionist uh visions that that that, that they're lying but it's 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 still not it's not quite analogous to the soviet union um where the soviet union wanted to have you know want, wanted to convert proxy states into communist uh, sure, you know satellites sure. uh whereas i think china is mostly um church, the ccp is is mostly a, a a project on civilization building right and mm-hmm. um it's not that they are they do have sort of expansionist views but it's it, it's they have a, they it's much more oriented around um rectifying the the hum- humiliations they've they've suffered through history reconstituting like a Han civilization um, and you know growing their might and it's 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 more it's not that it's it's not isolationist but it's also not um, uh, it's not like liberal universalist where right well it's not homogenizing in quite the same way I think so we had um, Vincent Garton wrote a piece on uh, the thought of Jiang Shigong who is uh, a fairly prominent thinker uh, within the party, informing some of its international doctrine. He's also been quite focused on the Hong Kong issue, and um, you know, Jiang's thought focuses on this question of how you reconcile a kind of imperial polity with heterogeneity. And it's very clearly Sinocentric, you know, China, the role China has in a, in a Sinocentric world order is that it's able to preferentially promote um, allies or systems, uh, you know, in, in the world order. Um, it is still heterogeneous. There's the, you know, he used the term one country end systems, uh, or we might even say like one polity end systems or jurisdictions or even governments. So I, I think you're you're definitely correct that maybe the ideological header or homogeneity that the Soviet project uh, implied is probably not there. Um, on the other hand, it does definitely seem to be the case that when the party state looks at its economic power, it it is looking to build a world order of sorts. I don't think that is an exaggeration. I, and I think that the internal discourse in the party is increasingly moving toward um, that kind of goal. And I think you're seeing it in you know United Front work that's gone on. Uh, there was recently in Canada stories breaking about um, United Front organizations and their role uh, when China was in, in the heat of the pandemic crisis. They were... Um, being coordinated at an astonishing level, sending medical equipment back uh, back to China and are are now by all accounts receiving donations in kind um, you know as as a move of support right So given that even if the the ideological aspect here is not the the same as as it used to be, it still seems to be the case that as these two powers are competing with each other, they're also probably going to start learning from each other. And I think China seems to have made the first move there, right, by integrating markets into its system. Um, I guess, do, do you see the U.S. changing in any, like, substantive structural way uh, in return? 
you know, industrial policy has an American tradition uh, behind it already. But I think that obviously America now as a country and as a political culture is not at all used to thinking of markets as downstream from political decisions or markets as tools of industries rather than these kind of natural bazaars where exchange happens. So I, I guess that's the sort of evolution that I'm looking at here. Um, no, I do not think there's going to be convergence in that dimension. I think what, what's happening more in the U.S. now is a kind of uh, left and right variance of corporatism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. it, whether it's common good capitalism from Marco Rubio, where uh, which is, you know, derived from Catholic social thought, but you know, it's also echoed in Elizabeth Warren and, and her and her sort of uh, multitudinous multitudinous plans. Um, and, and the the idea there is that you know, corporate corporatism is more that um, is less that the is less that uh, the, that companies are sort of creatures of the state, like like a state-owned enterprise, uh, and more that um, corporations have some uh, inherent duties to their workers or to other stakeholders rooted in natural law, right? And so that that is different from the uh, more Protestant uh, conception of the market as just this like platform for a bazaar, and there's no no um, no ultimate good uh, around it. So yeah, the market I, is the end, so to speak. Right, or it's more just like the market is a neutral place to interface rather than something that's constructed. So I think that there is, it looks, it, it can it can fool you into thinking that the U.S. is becoming more Chinese in that sense, but really I think it's becoming more Catholic <laughs> than anything. And maybe that's a reflection of uh, Latin immigration, um, but also I think it's a reflection of um, the kind of WASP elite uh, losing their, their influence, right? Um, hmm. uh, because that, that, that white, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sort of vision of, of uh, the melting pot and, uniform, and, and also the um, uh, sort of conception of the market uh, is still dominant, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like an overwhelming majority anymore. Right. I mean, on the other hand, though, you, you have, you know, traditions or, or heritage, let's say, like the American system or the American school, which was this sort of Hamiltonian-derived... Yeah idea that the economic system exists to develop the country uh, or, or the republic the polity um yeah. it's it's interesting that you're you're framing it as a move away from kind of older american traditions but it it seems to exist in in the american consciousness maybe it's been dormant for some time uh but but still there well, I, I think my claim is more that, you know, if, the, if there is like this Catholic Protestant sort of division um, that we're, we're lead, the pendulum is swinging back towards a more Catholic sort of ethic. And sure, obviously that ethic has existed uh, throughout American history. It's just it happens that the colonies uh, were more Protestant than it. And mm-hmm. but that but that that makeup is changing. Um, and, and, you know, the, and I've made the analogy to, of uh, the Chinese system as a kind of Confucian integralism, right? Like the, it's not really mm-hmm. communist or Marxist in any, in any, um, in, in a, you know, coherent sense, but it is sort of asserting this kind of Confucian conception of um, social order and uh, the merging of state and civil society with, with individual 
the individual sphere um, that is like very thick, and it's it's, it's sort of analogous to uh, Catholic integralism. It just happens to have a different theology. So I'd like to um, kind of pu- sort of push on this topic of it and see what comes out because I we, we were chatting about a bit about this before um, the show, and I, I sort of disagree with. Um, thinking of it as Confucian in that sense. I, I guess I'd like to hear, you know, when you say Confucian, what precisely you're referring to. Um, and, and just maybe as a way to um, give an initial response. To me, if you look at what Confucius did, right, he was not creating a new system of thought uh, purely. He was looking at customs and institutions and literature that had pre-existed him. Uh, in the Zhou and the Shang dynasties. And he was trying to figure out, you know, what had degraded, how can these customs, these traditions, uh, these modes of knowledge be brought back into being so that, you know, the country and the rulers that he advised could return society to an era of peace and prosperity. To me, when we talk, you know, the existence of these similar customs maybe or ways of thinking in Chinese culture, um, also, you know, some of the other East Asian cultures, uh, Korea or Japan, that to me is not really the same thing as Marxism or Catholicism. Like, there are maybe implicit values, but I don't read it as really ideological. And there, I, I think that the equivalent of for the Confucian system would actually be something more like the institutions that existed at one point, um, the, the the scholarly institutions, the the Confucian traditions of the imperial court. Um, I think Matt Schmitz actually uh, in, in First Things had a recent article discussing um, some of this, uh, some of these institutions. And and to me, when I look at China now, you know, obviously there are these Confucian traditions that exist now in the country. There's been a redevelopment of Confucian thought, but the party state to me seems to be using this more in an attempt to create a narrative of continuity. And when I read, you know, literature or or, or speeches um, from the party state itself, like from what as best I can discern is the brain of the party state, it seems to be Marxian in the sense, like, you know, I've had debates where does does the Chinese Communist Party believe in the eventual withering away of the state? I don't know. If I had to bet money, I'd no, say probably they don't, they don't not. But certainly the way, well, but but the way that they think about power and the world, I do think that they would see these sorts of customs almost the way you know that we were discussing earlier. They would see these cultural elements as downstream from the economic conditions. Um, you know, in Garten's article, he he cited. Uh, I don't have the name in front of me now, but the the thinkers in the party are looking at the logic of capital as a primary force here. And to me, the Confucian element of this, insofar as there's an ideological substance there, seems to be downstream rather than actually motivating the party state. So yeah, like when I said Confucian, I just mean to different to to, to say it's more rooted in a um, a thread line through Chinese culture rather than being um, necessarily communist or Marxist, which are these more modern uh, conceptions, right? And um, I mean, Marxism itself, like, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to um, Orwell in his, his notes on nationalism where he, you know, he compared fascism to Catholicism. 
and and said that these these two kinds of totalitarianism have a lot in common, right? And in, in 1984, he wrote about um, you know the Hate Week uh, as an analogy to Holy Week, and these these minutes, mm-hmm. uh, morning hates, or whatever, where where you um, go and and yell at the enemy, or you know the despite being atheistic, the kind of suppression of uh, sexual instincts and desire um, and all that stuff is that totalitarian mindset I think is fundamentally theocratic and um, even if even under it's like atheist guys um, and in the in the context of China it's not that I'm, I'm ascribing any sort of like thick ideological Confucian like message but it is about social harmony the kind of the kind of embeddedness of people in this in in the state as an organic unity and um, which is kind of like the integralist proposition, right? It's it, sure. I, I think that is true. I, I I guess the way that I see it more, you know, f- from the beginning of the CCP's existence, I think one of the things that distinguishes them from the early Bolsheviks is that they discuss socialism as a way to save China, right? And this is now a very distinct way of talking about their political project. It's much more linked to the nation. And to me, that's one of the most consistent things that one sees uh, uniting the era of Mao, or even predecessors, you know, like Sun Yat-sen, or the communists when they were still basically a faction among the nationalists. But all the way through through Deng and, and to Xi now, there seems to have been this way of thinking of the party's ideology as um, predicated on what is necessary to restore, you know, a, a powerful and prosperous and respected yeah, like, as China. As I said, it was a restoration, and pro- I, I think that, restoration project. Right. That's, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's correct. But the, the reason that I kind of, I think it is actually important to take them seriously as thinking like Marxists. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying not to take like a Puritan view of this term, right? Sure, if, if, if you're talking to someone from like some Trotskyite breakaway of a breakaway, yeah, maybe they can give a, a very detailed reason why the Chinese aren't true Marxists or something. But I'm talking in a much more basic way, which is that the way that they look at power and the world, the way that they create strategy for the future, but also I think the way that they look at their own past I think they do do this through a, a Marxist lens of how society works. And I, I think the thing that has brought me to think about the party state in this way is, you know, I remember even in the early 20 teens, you know, I, I was reading uh, into some of the internal discourse. And the thing that interested me was that if one had simply read what the party itself was saying at that time, and, and you know, er, earlier in the 2000s and the 90s, and had just taken them seriously, we would have predicted far more accurately the situation now. But at that point, the response in the West was, oh, well, this is all ideological dress up. It's fake. You know, they'll just become a liberal democracy right. at some point like everyone else. I, I think that's why I sort of insist on this kind of serious reading of what they are thinking well, and saying. I'm- yeah, I mean, they're the only sort of, <laughs> they literally publish like, uh, hey, here's a 15-year heads up <laughs> what we're yeah, going to do. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I don't think we were disagreeing as, as much as it sounds because um, however you're defining Marxism is is so detached from 
you know, the Communist Manifesto. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's more, sure. it's more about, uh, you know, maybe, you know, Zizek has even talked about this as like, the, the state capitalism is a kind of like, um, apotheosis for his vision of communism because, <laughs> because it's kind of like having the entire uh, state operate as like one organic corporation. Uh, but you know, I would rather call that like a kind of more, I'd, I'd rather call it corporate feudalism. Right. And in some ways a better, like my understanding of Marxism is really as a kind of anti-feudalism all the way down. And, uh, and I think it's, yeah, I it's, think that's true. Yeah, I think it's that's kind of true. more, um, more realistically or more accurately portrayed in, in some ways it's like the, like, Neoliberalism is more neoliberal. Um, uh, neoliberalism is more Marxist in that sense because it's it's more about the breaking down of social hierarchies. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is kind of the old Christopher Hitchens take, right? That the capitalism is the the true revolutionary force uh, in the world. Um, That's just a neocon take, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 That's true. Uh, I, I think though that the the Chinese response to that, you know, uh, in, in saying, "Oh, well, you know, this is a very maybe watered down or heterodox." use of the term Marxism is, you know, and they do say this in, in their own documents. Um, well, but Marxism is scientific socialism. Uh, that means it is adapted to the conditions that we find ourselves in. And so, sure, if, if they do things differently from the programs of prior generations or of other countries, that's fine. That, that is consistent to, to, their, to their way of thinking. Which I and I don't, I don't think that this is hypocritical, right? That, that this is the point I'm kind of making. The I think we underestimate the degree to which we we look at things that we would take to be an obvious contradiction, and and see that in fact they more you know I, I have I've referred to China before as the the world's foremost modernist and Hegelian state, and you know what I'm kind of the point I'm trying to provocatively make here is that no other country, no other great power anyway, is as obsessive with trying to like at least develop the the display of this consistent and detailed and meticulous theory framework for right. what they're doing right america doesn't really do this because i think it comes out of an earlier tradition of liberalism and more of an anglosphere tradition and russia is almost more of a postmodern country right it's that there is no there there it seems to be anything to anyone um and and so I, I think that that aspect of the party state's culture is, um, until recently anyway, has been kind of undervalued as a way to understand them. Oh, I totally agree with that. I just, so, but you kind of gave the, the game away by describing them as like Hegelian because they're not, that <laughs> sort of means they're not Marxist. <laughs> or at least oh, sure. it means they're related. But, you know, the, the part of the part of the issue is the, the flexibility of the term and, and how, and, and how, you know the the deeper concept is more like a pragmatism, um, mm -hmm. but but then the, then the pigeonholing of of these concepts to um, to create a, a semblance of, of continuity. When I would rather say that there there was a continuity that always existed, it, it, it the aberration was the period under which they pretended that it was Marxist. <laughs> I basically suspect that if there is ideological update on that front, it will probably come from within the Chinese system rather than outside it. Uh, let me put it that way. I, I basically think that the, the mind of the party has grappled quite strongly with the ideological expressions that the West put in front of it for the last 50 years. 
and has integrated the parts that they find mm-hmm. most useful. Um, I suspect that basically, you know, and I, I'm interested to hear, uh, you know, given your way of thinking about the world, um, how consequential uh, the size of China's economy is going to be. Um, I think we underestimate the degree to which the American claim to variety prosperity was so important to winning over people in right. the Cold War. Do you see this going a different way in the this next stage? I think it's really hard to say. I think um, it's really easy to extrapolate from a from a linear trend and say that things are just going forever the way they have. And um, you know what I see is China hitting a ton of headwinds, right? Um, demographically, population decline, the 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 kind of implications that has on their infrastructure, which may seem really amazing now. Um, but a lot of it is built of cheap concrete with by by the equivalent of right. like that's how you can get a one day you know right and so there 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 is like this austrian theory of the business cycle <laughs> the application to uh, to china that at some at some point um there's going to be a, a liquidation event and whether that's a very slow unwinding or a hard crash um i think it actually is unavoidable um and so i i actually put their I'm actually a bit of a China, Chinese pessimist in this sense because I think they're they're kind of hitting the the um, the the conditions to have a lost a Japanese style lost decade, but they but it's occurring uh, with while they're still right. half as rich as Japan was when it happened to them. I guess the question there though is whether that's the economic stagnation of the Soviet Union in the '80s. Or whether it's the Great Depression of the U.S. at the early, in the early twentieth century, right? I think people almost underestimate the degree to which a country can overcome, right? Even uh, a well, serious this isn't merely a crash, crash, right? It's it's, it's right, the, and the, and if, if China's destiny, and um, for whatever reason, it, uh, Chinese fertility rates are, are incorrigibly low. Yeah, this to me is the stronger um, argument that that for like a, but, that, a but it's really what I'm referring to. Like everything is really yeah. dependent on if you don't have population growth, then yeah. there's no point in investing in that highway because fewer people are going to drive on it in 100 years, <laughs> and um, and so you can't amortize mm-hmm. it over all those people. And um, you know, one of the secrets to America's success is actually both its relatively high fertility rate, its relatively high and it's relatively high immigration rate, right? Like Im- immigration is a geopolitical issue for the United States, and it should be. Um, if, if you are a one America mm-hmm. kind of American nationalist, I actually think you should be for much higher rates of immigration. We should be targeting a billion people. Um, and, you know, th- we can debate the composition. I think if you mm-hmm. have a more nationalist view, you should, you should be focused on things that benefit the national interest and not necessarily just humanitarian immigration. Um, but you know, Canada takes this very seriously, as you know. Um, you know, Canada, Canada's immigration policy is is rooted in in e- its own economic self interest, uh, and uh, is built on a recognition that to have geopolitical influence, it can't just be a country of thirty five million; it has to be a lot bigger. Um, and uh, and that's also true of the United States, where three hundred and thirty million is an order of magnitude smaller than, you know, 1.3 billion. Um, and, and Africa is, is the is the wild card here because right now we're talking about <laughs> talking about the two more salient powers. But what uh, you know, Africa is another billion people who um, uh, are going to have way different policy experiments, so to speak, um, and way different cultural 
uh, and economic innovations, um, and in the long run will be, and already are, kind of like the modal human being when you think of humans on Earth. <laughs> you know, when, when the aliens open up their encyclopedia and look at Earth, they're going to see a picture of a Nigerian or an Ethiopian. Um, uh, and, and we have to uh, recognize that. And it's interesting to me that for the last, you know, few decades at least, um, immigration and uh, fertility or, or, you know, natalism, let's say, have been considered two entirely separate issues. Um, it seems to be partially because there's a lot of, you know, different moral claims that get presented or assumed within the immigration debate. But strategically, they're obviously very similar. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, um, you've looked at things like child tax credits and the like. Um, I think this might be an interesting issue to kind of uh, wind down and end on. Do you see that kind of economic benefit as being a strong impetus toward population growth in terms of people having more children as well? Because, you know, I, the, the strongest counter argument that I seem to hear is you look at the Scandinavian countries, right, where you have a very strong social state. Um, sure, the taxes are high, but, you know, people also have jobs that are well educated and so on. And yet um, the fertility rates are quite low. And so th the assumption that mere economic opportunity is what drives fertility oh, um, seems to come into conflict there. Uh, how would you think about this? Um, well, by, by far the biggest, um, you know, the biggest influence on fertility choice is cultural more more than material. Um, that doesn't mean that incentives don't work. Uh, there are you know great empirical papers proving that paying people to have kids makes them have more kids, um, as you'd expect. It's just that you can have you can multiply the effect if you make it a, a cultural cachet to have children. Um, or if they're, you know, if you log into your Facebook feed, I had this debate with the last time I was in San Francisco, I went to, I was at an event that had a lot of Facebook, Facebookers there. And I was talking to the guy who heads their, uh, demography, uh, program. Um, and I was trying to persuade him to, uh, uh, alter the newsfeed algorithm to promote more uh, sharing of kids photos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause I think that, that, that's actually the thing that, um, Traditionally, like I don't know, in the fifties or whatever, people had kids when in their, when they were younger because everyone else was having kids when they were younger. Um, and you know, if you were the the, the, mm -hmm. the thirty year old who hadn't had a kid yet, all your friends were getting married and whatever. You feel a lot of pressure. Um, and social atomization, which there's a lot of in Scandinavia, for example, um, uh, removes a lot of that peer pressure. Um, and the other the other dynamic is uh, is also because America mm -hmm. is so open to immigration. Including from, you know, developing and, and uh, more traditional countries, there's there's they're they're continually continually um, replenishing the the cultural appetite for for uh, big families. Um, uh, you know, the, and so this just it's just something that's going to be a permanent competitive advantage for the United States. You know, Japan is is suffering from their low low birth rate and very, very old population. And, you know, they last year or the year before they announced they're going to do a big guest worker program, but you know, that stuff is just basically buying them time. Um, they, they are congen, they are, you know, institutionally unable to, uh, embrace a, a, a large volume of, uh, culturally dis 
uh, distant immigration uh, in the way that the U.S. can. Yeah, well, and it does seem to be the case that a lot of social norms function this way, right? I mean, we saw it now with social distancing. Um, you know, you, you had people, uh, you had like the, the early adopters of, of seeing that this was going to become a medical crisis. Uh, a lot of people in, in the Bay Area, and, you know, I, I've seen definitely lashback in the wake of this because a lot of these early you know, people talking about the possibility of pandemic in, say, January, February, were being called alarmists. And then by April, uh, this has been sort of completely memory hold that there even were um, people talking about it earlier on. Uh, but for most people, uh, when a lot of their friends suddenly stayed home in the course of essentially a few days, they started staying home. And so that those kinds of social norms clearly do function on a group level. And it's probably very difficult to just well, rewrite it's social norms. The, the coronavirus has made us all traditionalists, right? We're all homeschooling our kids. Right, yeah. Homeschooling and working at home. And do you think that restoring uh, or, you know, putting the home kind of back into economic life as as a, a social unit would be important for um, kind of renormalizing having children? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the origin correct me if I'm wrong, like the etymology of economics is the home. Um, sure. But I, you know, I, I'm talking more, you know, more recently, I, I think even, even in economic literature, right. Uh, household production is often not, um, right. Included. You see a ton of this. You see, um, on, you know, on, obviously on the right, you get, you know, the, a lot of the, a lot of the discourse around child allowances and child and family benefits is on promotion of the family, um, and the house household and rec recognition of, um, non-market labor, and this is goes back to you know how how you can connect it with a more Catholic strain of thought because it is really based around, based in you know, decommodification, right? Uh, this notion that not everything can be a commodity. Um, on the left, you obviously see this as well, uh, but I think the left, being the more professional party, professionalist party, um, there that's where the center of gravity is for you know universal pre-K and early childhood education programs that, that are ostensibly about, you know, creating opportunity, but are pretty, you know, they're supported by the U S chamber of commerce for a reason, right? Right. Yeah. You're um, going to workforce. Right. So that, that, that's where one of the tensions is right now. Um, you know, I think you could foresee this, this, uh, crisis as, uh, generating a, a kind of like turn to the home. And, you know, for one thing, um, and one of the drivers for fertility decline in recent history in the U.S. has been just the uh, the rise in rents in big urban areas. And so you have a generation of millennials who are unable to accumulate wealth to start a family, um, and and uh, and they're and thereby like uh, fail to achieve their fertility ideals, or you know only begin starting to have a family when they're unable to have two or three. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, anything that corrects the housing market would be amazing yeah. for, uh, for pronatalists. I mean, one of my concerns, honestly, and uh, something I've tweeted about with the, the work at home stuff has been, you know, th there's an optimistic view of this where people can spend more time with their kids, um, have more flexibility in structuring their day. And, you know, th this, this reintegration maybe of, of home and economic life uh, that could be more holistic. But on the other hand, we're, we're already seeing um, companies selling uh, essentially home monitoring 
uh, softwares for uh, things, you know, like typing on keyboards or, or whether someone is, is at their computer or, you know, using Slack, say. Um, these companies are making a lot of sales. I, I think that the pessimistic view of this looks something like your bot, you know, your house, it's not going to be a reintegration. It will be more like your office cannibalizing your house and your, your boss will ping you if you use your own toilet too many times or if you're off slack for too long. And, uh, I, I worry, I guess that given how strong, you know, the, the primacy of the professional culture is in, in American life that that might be the more likely road. Like, I mean, hopefully, if that happens, at least some companies, hopefully the more foresighted ones, or farsighted ones, rather, will essentially make part of their pitch that they do not operate in this way. But um, I, I I hope this is not how it turns out. But I, I'd, I guess, are you an optimist on what working from home looks like or the future of working from home? Um, I guess I'm a agnostic because, <laughs> um, and I, I know, you know my personal experience has been that uh, working from home these last couple months um, uh, leads you to do a lot more work because there aren't clear boundaries of when to stop and start. Um, yeah. But I think that is more of a learning by doing thing that people would adjust to. Um and I also think that, uh, you know, for the, for the class of people who have jobs like ours, where we are kind of doing the thing we want to do, like the, you know, the thing we set out to do. Right. There's more of an enjoyment to it. Right. Like the, the work-life balance thing is a kind of myth, um, that, uh, at least for, for certain kinds of professions, you know, it's, it's not a job. It's, it's something that happens to pay you, but you're doing yeah. it. Um, when it comes to more, more career vocation than just something one does for money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think it monitoring and productivity monitoring technology is definitely, uh, something to keep an eye on. Um, I think that's coming regardless of if there's any shift to remote work. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, it might, it might, you might need more of it to compensate for the lack of an, a manager looking over your shoulder. But you know, I, I, that in that setting, uh, I think that's going to have, um, a very, differential effect based on the type of job, right? So, um, you know, I, I've known uh, people who, uh, you know, in Nova Scotia, where, where I'm from, they, we had a big call center hub, and then all those call centers went to the Philippines, and, and um, they, they uh, rather than uh, fire everybody, uh, they offered people either severance or you get to work from the call center for home, from home because it's lower cost, right? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of people back home who, you know, are in their fifties, uh, and they, you know, have five minute breaks for the bathroom and <laughs> they're being watched. And that's, that's a kind of, that's a kind of like bringing the panopticon into the house. That's a little, little worrying. On the other hand, it's the, it's qualitatively sort of similar to if, the, if they were in a, in a building call center because call center jobs are just like that. Yeah. And I mean, those are the sort of jobs I think that would you know where I, I think the quality of life would probably become worse if if the pessimistic situation wins out like if you're basically doing code monkey work for um an app that's like doing food delivery uh and you don't really have plans to become a founder or something like that in future and now your apartment is essentially integrated into your office um that quality of life would seem to be obviously much worse. 
And were that, com- you know, if, if a large number of people were affected in that way, then I think we would start seeing very, you know, this would spill over into political life in a, in a real way. So I think it matters a lot on, on the geography of this, right? So to the extent that remote work can actually enable people to not cluster in expensive coastal cities, um, you can have an incredibly good quality of life and living in a low cost area working just now and then, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, I've, 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 my pessimism changes based on the time of day, but, um, you know, in my pessimistic days, I, I worry that uh, the main trend with technology is to render a lot of human, um, uh, a lot of uh, human sort of cognitive skills and non-cognitive skills kind of obsolete or, or at least low marginal product relative to what the AI can do. And it's not that the AI um, re- replaces your, your job. It's more that uh, it leads to a bifurcation of the labor market. And, mm. um, and there's a large, there are, you know, a long tail of people who basically enter a kind of underclass. Um, and, you know, the, the, you know, in averages over uh, the Tyler Cowen book, he, he predicts that uh, in the next uh, coming decades, America will have new shanty towns, right? Um, and you, you sort of already see that on Skid Row. Uh, I think there's a, a, a world where that something like that happens. They, won't, they wouldn't look like conventional shanty towns, but, the, the, but sort of like what Appalachia is now, where you have a lot of like, low quality housing, people, people sort of barely uh, tracing by. You know, they go to their, <laughs> they have, they have culture and they have family and they have, um, a life. Um, uh, and, and it's not that they are being, you know, squeezed by a big corporation. It's more like they're just, um, uh, totally disconnected from, uh, the broader labor market. To bring this maybe a little bit full circle. Um, one of the things that I noticed about the, uh, worker pay supplementation stuff that we were talking about was. There seems to be a way in this, which this can be kind of soft industrial policy, right? So the industries that are targeted for this will become more valuable um, in the labor market for the uh, supply side of that market. And those industries should, you know, all it's equal as, as grow as a result. And so this and, you know, other ways of doing this with, you know, state as, as first buyer or so on, it, it seems like industrial policy, the way that that translates into political vision is that you can start trying to develop industries in ways that the jobs people do are more pro-social in that way. So they're structured in ways that complement family life or complement living in communities that aren't just, you know, apartment buildings for single professionals. Um, if, If you were... I guess, putting skin in the game here, uh, making the bet on the industries we should look at. Is there, are there any early adopters on that end, I guess? People you see making steps um, toward creating those kinds of jobs? Yeah, it's a a website called OnlyFans. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I mean... I I don't know uh, how how many young mothers are using it. I think it's a fairly limited number. I have a, a friend, a former stu- a classmate of mine, who um, has a paper, a manuscript, um, 
on the unusual or the, uh, the, 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 the disproportionate number of Instagram influencers who are, who are Mormon. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and this is, it, it comes from their high rate of stay at home motherhood and, uh, and the kind of, um, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing too, but, uh, but those are, those are potentially the kind of jobs they are sort of like supplemental jobs. Um, yeah, they're showing you a lifestyle essentially. And making it desirable, but but it, yeah, and it, it itself is just a, also an income stream, right? So, yeah. you know, one of the ways that people are making it in the modern economy is by patching together like various forms of passive income and some supplemental income, and it kind of adds up, right? You get your Patreon account, and you have your, you know, whatever your your Etsy. You can, you know, especially if if the cost of living is low, do quite well on that. You know, there's there's people on YouTube who self-finance or world travel because they have 200,000 subscribers and that's enough to to basically live uh, in northern India and then jump on a train to you know whatever the Alps um, and, th and th th that's going to be more attractive to people um, assuming that you know <laughs> we can travel again someday well and it shows how much like the status mechanisms are important here I think um, you know in, in Georgia, one of the most interesting stories I read about was how the the patriarch, the, the head of the Georgian Orthodox Church in that country, um, I, I believe what he started doing was personally baptizing children who were, I think, the third child or above for that family. And uh, th there seemed to be boosts in, in births happening to a degree. And, you know, maybe one can argue a bit back and forth about the causation, but uh, clearly... In, an, in, in a social status hierarchy where that kind of uh, move grants status to the person doing it in the same way that being in uh, an Instagram community and, you know, g getting featured on a live stream or something or being like a Catholic mommy blogger right. and getting a lot of followers. When, when your immediate social relations are doing something, that that's like the key thing to solve. Um, and I definitely think that that's probably where uh, you know places like the Bay Area or where where have you should start to talk more. Is okay. So given a particular material base, given a world that we're finding in ourselves in, uh, let's think of the vision where these things can be oriented toward like the most the the most virtuous, most glorious, most the the, the sort of vision that people would want to be caught up in. I think right. Um, well, in some way, well, in some way, there's a tension here, right? So, like one of the one of the trends is, and what I was describing is uh, a labor market where a lot of people just drop out altogether, um, and new jobs that are also, in a sense, kind of opt out, right? Like being a yeah. being a Twitch streamer is not <laughs> is not a real job in <laughs> any uh, conventional sense. It is it is kind of like uh, it is a kind of uh, you know, juke to self-reliance. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It's not nearly. It's not interdependent, except on the people you beg for tips. And so you can get a situation where there is this like fraying of the social fabric, where uh, the kind of broader bourgeois class of of a big middle class um, hollows out into this like barbell economy, um, and that tears apart the fabric. And then at the same time, there. Um, the, the kinds of social, the kinds of opportunities that do exist are 
of the form that they do not necessarily like rely on any of the social infrastructure that exists in, in your neck of the woods, right? So mm-hmm. when, uh, when Elizabeth Warren says you didn't build that, um, it doesn't really apply to you know the top CSGO Twitch streamer <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. he didn't drive on any roads today. <laughs> He's not really trading of anybody. In fact, he could live anywhere. Um, and still be the, the best Twitch streamer. So yeah, it's a much more individualistic, uh, you know, way of building something. Yeah, and deter deter. It's not even it was deterritorialized, but also kind of freestanding. And mm-hmm. I think that's disconcerting from the point of view of social cohesion and also uh, sort of this this concept of like a an organic economic system mm-hmm. that we were we were talking about at the start. Well, Sam, I'm looking at the time here. Uh, we're about to get onto the nearly two-hour stretch, so uh, I think we'll probably have to wrap it up there for now. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. We managed to cover a lot of ground, so uh, I'm very glad about that. Uh, thanks again for your time today. Um, are there any projects or anything you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Uh, not particularly. If people are interested in following me, I'm, I'm Ham and Cheese on Twitter. That's about it. Okay, sounds good. Um, well, Sam, you have a good rest of your day. Uh, And thanks again for your time. Thanks, Ash.